We're in the middle of a series right now, and, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great series. I'm really enjoying it. It's about relationships, and it's called Let the Games Begin. And we, we talked uh, last week a little bit about how dangerous it is to play games in relationships. And we, some of us love games. Some of us don't love games. Um, this is not talking about family game night, although family game night sometimes is a great thing, and sometimes, come on now, family game night ends up in a very, very bad spot. I have been a part of some, uh, some family monopoly-type games, and, and things just go bad in a, in a bad way. But, uh, but uh, what we talked about is what we began to uh, break open is that when, when we play games in relationships, for you to play a game in a relationship, there has to be a winner and because there has to be a winner, suddenly there has to be a what? A loser. And when we take this sometimes competitive nature that we have and, and start to, uh, to play games, and no one wants to be in a relationship with someone who's playing games with them. We know that instinctively. But games are a fun thing, and they're a challenging thing. They bring out something in ourselves. So any of you here, I know there's at least one, who are from, who from Eastern Washington? Any Eastern Washington folks here? I got at least one, a couple First service, there was a couple, but they wouldn't raise their hand. I don't know why they were embarrassed about. I, uh, I, did, uh, I did ministry in eastern Washington for about eight years. I did youth ministry. And, uh, and I was an associate pastor at a church. And I played in some, uh, some church rec league basketball situations. I got to tell you something. Something happened to me in Spokane that had never happened to me anywhere else. And I don't know if it was just this particular league, this particular church culture. But I got I to be honest with you for a moment. When I play, I like to win. And I don't care too much about your feelings until after the fact, right? If you're broken and crumbled on the floor and I've won, then I'll have compassion. But in the middle of it, you know, I, I never had that gene. I didn't have that instinct. And something happened when I was playing, come on now, City League in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Spokane. People began to identify me as not just on the team, but as Pastor Mike. And, and as they identified me as Pastor Mike, there was like a little bit of this expectation that I would be kinder or gentler than I naturally was. And I would play in these games and there would be this like, oh, here comes Pastor Mike. I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, just get open, I'll fake it to you. <laughs> right? Because we're trying to win this game. And so I actually ended up leaving. I wouldn't play anymore because I felt this pressure of, oh, I couldn't play as competitive as I wanted to play. So then we went to plant a church in Springfield, Oregon, in Eugene Springfield, Oregon. And I was working for the Park and Rec District and we started a church league because I was working there. And I'm telling you, some of the places where you can go and find the least amount of Jesus is church league anything. And so I'm playing in this church league te team and we haven't even started our church yet. And I've got a church league team that we're running. And I'm kind of in this weird, like, oh, should I be Pastor Mike or should I be, you know, Champion Mike? And I'm playing passive and these guys are chewing me out. We need your best effort. This isn't everything you have. I was like, whoa, this is a totally different culture. And you can go into some places and they love competition and they love games and everybody's in it to win it. And you go to some places and it's just like, hey, we're just trying to have a good time here, man. Why don't you settle down a little bit? And so games can be a complicated thing. It can be hard to navigate the tension of games. And so last week we talked about one of the games that we tend to play in relationships that's very dangerous and potentially toxic to your relationships. We talked about the change game. It's the game where I know what you're like, but I believe I can make you like something else. And I'm going to play a game with you and see if I can get you to become who I think you should become. And no one wants to be in a long-term relationship with someone who they're sure is trying to change them. 
And so if you, uh, if you missed that, you should catch up online and, and dive in. And we talked about it. And then this week, I want to talk about another game that we play in relationships, a little game I like to call the blame game. The blame game. Now, we play some games in my house. My oldest is sitting right here. Eight o'clock on a weeknight, a couple nights a week. What happens at eight o'clock? What game do we play? We play Mario Kart in my house. Now, we play Mario Kart how it's meant to be played on the GameCube because those buttons dad understands and can win still. And so the newer systems, I'm out, right? But the older systems, I can still hang. And we play one map over and over and over again. What map do we play? Baby Park, because Baby Park on Mario Kart is a circle, right? There's one turn. Go around, make a left. Go around, make a left. Come around, make a left. And then we flip to mirror mode. Go around, make a right. Go around, make a right. Why? Because dad can drive a car around in a circle and still hang. And so we'll play, you know, at night. We'll get the whole family together, the six-year-old, seven-year-old, the 39-year-old. We'll play, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have this aggressive game. Now, here's something you have to know if you've never played Mario Kart before. It's not fair. It's absolutely designed so that whoever's in the back gets items that can just destroy whoever's in the front, right? So your skill at that game is directly related to the skill of the person in last place. And usually the person in last place is getting items that just fly up to the front and blow you up. So here's what happens. Lap four, lap five, lap six. We have seven laps in a race, right? And around lap six, whoever's in first place just starts getting blown up. Blue turtle, boom, blown up, blown up, blown up, blown up. And then whoever's in second usually comes racing around and wins the race. And then there's a moment where everyone goes, ah, and everyone points at whoever's in last place. And they're like, you're the reason they won. And, and, we, and you're the reason if you didn't blow me up 10 times and you got this item and it wasn't fair. And we start playing a new game. Instead of Mario Kart, we start playing the blame game. And the blame game goes a little something like that. The reason that this happened, even though I was involved, is you. And the thing you did and there's a whole lot of blaming that goes on in our house. Now, it's a little bit fun at that time, and, you know, it's all pretty good-natured, but it gets ugly from time to time. You let the seven-year-old not win for a whole long time. Okay, the 39-year-old not win for a long, long time, and the tensions get a little bit up there. Pretty soon, elbows are flying. You didn't know you could box out in video games, but you can. But we learn really early on how to play the blame game. We ask simple things, and we, we make certain statements in our mind, like, I wouldn't have done that if they didn't. We justify our bad choice and our behaviors based on someone else and saying, well, if they wouldn't have done this or if they had done this. And this comes up all the time in relationships. I can think of pretty devastating moments in my own family. Maybe you've had something similar to this. I won't give you all the details because it's a long story, but where one side of the family does something and they probably did the wrong thing. And the other side of the family reacts to that wrong thing by doing a very wrong thing. And suddenly it's like a contest of who can be the worst to the other person. And it's ramping up and building up and everyone has a reason why they made the decision that they made. And I've been in the middle of those kind of wars before. I can remember talking to my uh, uh, family member who's kind of at the top of the food chain and just saying, listen, you're aware that you did the wrong thing. And them saying, well, yeah, but I did it because. And I was trying to figure out, well, wait a second. You're like the responsible one. No, 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 I did it because. And then you go to the other person and say, well, listen, I understand they did the wrong thing, but uh, you, know, you, have to, you have to make a, a different, and the, no, 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 I could never because. 
And you could see the power and the trap and the danger of this little game that we like to call the blame game. You see it in society all the time. You know who are the professional blame game experts? And if you have this profession, I'm not taking a shot at you. You're just really good at the blame game if you're a lawyer. You're a professional. And we've seen some of the most silly, frivolous lawsuits in the, in the last 15, 20 years. I was trying to think of some of the crazy ones. Like we know hot coffee at McDonald's. Like we've seen some of these crazy, frivolous lawsuits. But there's been some pretty crazy ones. There was a guy who sued Oreo cookies saying that because they were fattening, he sued them and said, there's too much fat in Oreo cookies. They're making me fat. He didn't win. There was a thief uh, 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 who had been breaking into local businesses, and this bar owner set up like booby traps when he locked up his, uh, his bar, and he put signage up. He's like, don't break it, but break in here. There's booby traps. And he broke in, and he died in one of the booby traps, and they sued in one, even though there was signage that said, hey, don't break in here, booby traps. My favorite one, though, this guy sued Anheuser-Busch. And he sued them, and he said, false advertising. Because when I watch your commercial, the guy who's drinking your beer always gets the girl. But I've been drinking your beer forever, and I'm lonely. He sued because he was lonely because his life didn't look like the commercial. It's the picture of the blame game to its extreme, isn't it? My favorite, uh, my favorite explanation of it was this picture from this billboard from a lawyer. Look what it says. Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. And we live like that all the time. I remember the first time I ever got pulled over by the police. I'll say the first time I ever got pulled over by the police on a church youth event. Now, that's a bad look for the youth pastor to be having a conversation with the police in the church van when it's full of youth kids. But let me explain. I was picking up kids to go to an event. We were running behind and we're coming down the hill. This is in, uh, in Everett, Washington. I'm actually in Mill Creek, Washington, but uh, up north. And I'm, I'm coming down this hill and this hill does this thing where it goes from two lanes to one lane. Now, I explained earlier I'm competitive. So, if we're going from two lanes to one lane and we're going downhill, guess who's going to be first? I don't need turtle shells to win this race, right? I got youth kids in the van. Oh, I got to be clear. A box truck was in the other lane. Now, it's a basic law of nature that box trucks are slow and irritating and in the way if you're not in a box truck. If you're in a box truck, they're totally normal cars. But if you're not in a box truck, they're slow and in the way. And so I'm driving in this church van that has no acceleration at all. It's a church van. Come on now. But we're going downhill. So this is like one of those rare moments where I can actually go fast enough to get in front of somebody. I got a few kids in the car. It's not that big a deal. I punch it, which means I push it to the floor and nothing happens. But at least we're coasting downhill fast enough. And I zip into the left lane. I zip around the box truck. I pull in front of him. And then I slow down and I look up and I see, woo, woo. He was right there at the edge. So the officer pulls me over. The kids are getting their phones out. They're texting, tweeting about it. It's ridiculous, right? They're not supporting me at all. And the officer says, do you know what you did? And I said, yes, but first of all, it was a good move. And second, you saw the box truck, right? 
and, and, and you saw how we were going to one lane? And he goes, did you see how the speed limit slowed down on the hill, not up? I was like, yeah. And he goes, I, but you have to understand, I had to be, I'm, I got kids, I'm in a hurry. We're going to an event that's turning into one lane. And he goes, oh, I totally understand. Actually, no, he didn't say that at all. He said, you have an appointment with the judge, right? So then I went to the judge and the judge said, you got three options. You can vote, you can vote. <laughs> you can plead innocent, guilty, or guilty with an explanation. And I thought, I think I'm, you know, I think I, I think I can win this, but I'm gonna say guilty with an explanation because that feels like the more, you know, like I'm, some humility in there, right? And so I get up to the front, it's my turn, they call my name and I say, I'm guilty with an explanation. He goes, let's hear it. And I explained to him, you gotta, you gotta picture this. There's two lanes, they're gonna become one lane and there's a box truck. Like, do I need to say anything else? Of course I had to get in front. And as soon as I got in front of the box truck, I decelerated, I'm responsible. And he goes, oh, I totally understand. Except that's not what he said at all. <laughs> he said, you can pay the guy on the way. <laughs> right? But that's the blame game. We have a reason. That truck did not have to exist. We always have a reason. We place blame. What is blame? Blame is essentially to place responsibility for a fault, an error, or something like that on another. Blame is when we say, hey, yeah, I messed up, but it's somebody else's responsibility. If they hadn't, then I wouldn't. It's not how it works. So here's what the blame game is. The blame game is putting responsibility for your fault on someone else. If that truck wasn't there, if they weren't going slow, if they weren't driving a big truck, if this road didn't do that, if that speed limit sign wasn't there, hey, if you were just you know, doing something else, not paying attention, nobody got hurt. And here's the thing you have to understand. We have instinctively played the blame game from the beginning. We play the blame game in church. You play the blame game. I play the blame game. Everybody plays the blame game. Here's how I know. Let's play it together. Guess who's responsible for this entire mess that we're in? all of mankind being a mess. It's Adam and Eve, right? If, that, if they could have got their stuff together, we wouldn't have had any of these problems. We could play the blame game together just like that. If it wasn't for Adam and Eve, if Adam having, having the conversation that he had with God and God was like, hey, what happened? If he had just taken responsibility, yeah, I did it. It was totally me. But no, as a matter of fact, they played the blame game in a way that was even hilarious. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 3, and then I'm going to fast forward all the way up to Romans chapter 2 um, as we're kind of walking through this. But, but if you think about from the very beginning, we understood the blame game, and we started playing the blame game, and it started affecting relationships in a negative way all the way back to the beginning. And to get there, we got to go back to Genesis and take a look. Now, I love the book of Genesis. To me, the book of Genesis is, is just one of the most beautiful uh, 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 historical pieces of art and work that, that, that you could possibly explore. I love exploring the book of Genesis. I love the stories. But I got to caution you a little bit. Sometimes we get into the stories of Scripture, and it's easy to think about um, the stories as maybe anecdotes or parables or, and forget that these are real people with real experiences, that this is the history of mankind, that, that, that Scripture has painted for us a picture of who these people really are. And so I don't know what your history and your background is. I don't know when you think Adam and Eve what you think. But when I think Adam and Eve, I think this is the first man and the first woman, no belly buttons. Adam and Eve, right? They didn't need them. They were created. They didn't nurse in the womb. 
And so we get this picture of creation in the book of Genesis, and it's beautiful. I don't have time to unpackage the whole thing. If I did, we'd be here forever. But we get this picture of creation. It's beautiful. You see this picture of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this beautiful community pouring out life into the canvas of creation. We see God speaking and things happening. We see everything being created according to John 1 and Colossians that we read today. Everything that's created creates through the sun and and the word of God is active and making things happen. We see the spirit of God hovering over the waters and breathing the breath of life into things. It's this beautiful picture. And there's like this rhythm, it's almost like music. And a lot of times um, historical uh, uh, Hebrew writings have almost like a musical poetic quality to them. And as you read it, you see this beautiful picture of God creates, God creates, God creates, and it's good. And then God creates, God creates, and God, and it's good. It's like this rhythm of, of creation and life that's happening. And then he gets to man and he, God creates and he goes, this is incomplete. And then he creates woman and he's like, God creates again. And now it's good. And we have this incredible picture of the way that all of history was supposed to look. God created the earth and it was good. And they're in this environment and it's amazing. There's man and there's woman and they have stuff to do. Man's walking around and he's like platypus, just naming things, crazy things. He's like elephant, giraffe, zebra, squirrel, right? He's like all of these cool things. He's just creating, he's naming things and he has dominion and he's walking around in it and he's naked, and she's naked, and they're not even aware that they're naked. They don't even care. They're just out there. Here's what's crazy. They're in the image of God. They're hanging out with God, and they're naked. I don't know where your mind goes on the visual, but that's awesome. They're just hanging out. They're not worried about anything. They're just chilling. They're enjoying all of creation, and God's saying, listen, this is yours, and I did this for you, and I want to be with you, and here's this incredible harmony and relationship, and it's kind of like, I was thinking about it, it's kind of like when the worship team, and, and most of you don't even know this, but they get here early, they're here on Thursday practicing, and they get here early, and they have to work in order to be in harmony. All of the parts have to come together for, for there to be a, a, a cohesive, so, so when we see the worship team come up on stage, we're just like, oh yeah, they're all just playing their thing and doing their thing. What you don't see is behind the scenes, all of the individual parts that have to happen in specific timing for something to come out of that that is beautiful and harmonious and awesome. And then we just worship and we're like, oh yeah, our team's really good today. But we don't recognize how many pieces that are that way. But if you're musical or if you have an ear for it and something's off, you can pull that out sometimes. You can be like, man, that drummer, like he's always slow, right? It doesn't quite come in at the right time. But nothing in all of creation is like that. And then suddenly something's gonna happen that's gonna create dissonance. And, and rift the entire beauty of this flow of creation that God's created. And that's the story we're walking into right here. God creates everything. Um, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 3, but I'll back up for just a second so you can hear the history a little bit. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, he said, listen, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you for when you eat of it, you will surely die. I think the first time I ever had to defend my faith was a, a 10th grade English class. And a teacher had put like a, a starting conversation piece about God tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. And I was like, wait a second, God didn't tempt Adam and Eve. And she's like, well, sure he did. You know, that he put something there and said, you can't have it. That's temptation. And I was like, wait a second, 
if you tell me if I jump off this cliff, I'll die, did I tempt you or did I warn you? Did I give you protection by letting you know, hey, this is dangerous? Or did I say, you might want to jump off the cliff, see if you don't die, right? He says, if you do this, you'll surely die. And some have argued with me and said, why would God even put that into the equation? And, and you know, now I'm speculating, I'm off script, but the picture that I have is that, that here's this loving, incredible creator of the universe who relationally is connecting with all of us and saying, I want you to understand that you get to choose me the same way I chose to create you. And if you don't wanna choose me, there has to be an option for you to choose something else. Outside of that picture, there's also a picture of the creator of the universe just saying, you know what the best way to experience my creation is, is to know that I'm in control and that I'm God and I'm sovereign and that you can trust me. And there's some places that you're just gonna have to learn to trust me. So here's this one thing that's forbidden. One thing, guys. One thing. Everything is set up. We're dancing around. We're hanging out. Squirrel, everything's awesome. It's like this rhythm, this music, this harmony. Everything's beautiful. We're naked. We don't care. One thing's forbidden. And then here comes Genesis chapter three. And you know the story. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not? Did God really say you must not? You know how many times I've been in conversations with people asking me, did God really say I can't? Does God really care if I do this? Did God really say, we ask that question whenever we know we're about to do the thing that we know God said we shouldn't do. We ask that question over and over and over again. This is a direct quote from the serpent, but we ask this question. The moment we're like, I really wanna do this thing I know I'm not supposed to do, so let me just check. Did God really say, right? Or we'll try to get into degrees. Like how much did God say I can? Can I put my toe in over here and pull it back? Is it just if I totally jump in that I'm in trouble? Like, can I reach over there? Can Come on, guys. Every bad decision we make as we're following Jesus starts with just questioning, does God really care about that? Like, is it okay? But anyways, did God really say you must not eat from that tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. Now, let me back up for just a second here. We're about to see where Adam is. Because I always read this and I'm like, where's Adam? What else does he have to be doing right now? I mean, he's probably got a tiger over there and he's just scratching his beard. He's like, ah, I love you, tiger. He's playing with his ears, you know. And he's in dominion. He's in control over everything. But we know that in, in just a moment, he's gonna be right next to her when this is going on. So uh, just the picture we have in scripture, he's present, he's just not paying attention. Come on, gentlemen, how often are we present but we're not paying attention? That's a whole nother story. How much disaster could be averted? We're physically in the place, but we're not, our minds, we're not engaged, we're not present, we're not, pre you've been in the room with your family, but you're not, pre oh, I won't go there. That's a whole nother message. We might hit some spots there. Ladies, I got your back, we'll get there. <laughs> I'm here, but I'm not here. Um, anyways, um, so the woman said, you can't do that. Uh, verse three, but God did say, you must not eat from that or you'll die. Verse four, so here comes the serpent. You're not gonna surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. She's like, awesome. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. Then she went searching for her husband who was nowhere around and had no clue what was going on. No. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. 
he was there. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and right off the bat, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't this beautiful? They heard the sound of the Lord, their God, because he was walking in the garden with them in the cool. It was probably a day like today. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That passage right there is probably the saddest sentence in all of human history. They heard the presence of God, who they were used to hanging out with and spending time with. And their reaction to the presence of God for the first time in all of human history was guilt and shame and fear. Prior to this rebellion, they didn't even know what guilt and shame and fear. They don't even have the vocabulary for this. Adam hasn't named those emotions. They don't exist. But suddenly, they know they've rebelled and rejected and, and, and ran from God. They're aware of their nakedness, and they hide from God. And guilt and shame and fear enter into the equation for the first time. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? I love this. They hide among the trees of the garden. This is the God who just created them. This is the God who is like, oh, we need some more birds. Let's make some birds. We need some more trees. Let's make some trees. The, the creator of the universe. And they're like, let's play hide and seek. Maybe he won't see us over here in the garden, right? It's an absurd strategy. But it shows how to, now can, can we be honest real quick here? We do the same thing. We do the same thing all the time. When we're rejecting, resisting God, we think we can hide from him. When we're walking with God, we're like, I know you know my thoughts and I know you know my heart and I'm trying to live for you and it's great. And then we're like, you know what? I'm kind of want to do my own thing right now. I'm just going to hang over here like you can't see me. I'm just going to do this thing over here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in this room, close the store and do the thing that I, that I know I shouldn't do. Just like you can't see me over here, right? I'm hiding. And here's God saying, hey, where are you? He plays along. Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Man, fear gets in. Because I was naked. So I hid. And he says, hey, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Who deceived you? Who tricked you? Who, who, who manipulated you? Who broke you from this rhythm and relationship you had with me and created a rift in there? Have you eaten from that tree I commanded you not to eat from? And this is what I love. Adam demonstrates perfectly how to deal with tension in relationships. He says, yes, I ate from that tree that you told me not to eat for, and I take full responsibility. And I'm the leader of this family unit, and I want you to know that I, I was present, and this mistake is my mistake, and what can I do to make it right? <laughs> no, that's not what he did at all. Look at what he did. He played the blame game right off the bat. He goes, hey, that woman that you put here, he goes for the blame double two-point conversion. He's like, I already scored the touchdown, God, and rejected you, but we're going for two. Not only is it not my fault, it's the woman's fault, and if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty, you didn't have to make her. You didn't have to create her. And immediately we move into the blame game. I don't see any ownership here. Oh, 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 here's how it looks. The woman you put her with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree. And what was that? 
what was that, Adam? The woman who you put here, she gave me some of that. Come on now. You've seen that in your house before if you got kids, especially if you have multiple ones. What happened here? Well, Mia grabbed the thing and she brought it over here and then it was good. And so she was eating it. There's a ton of reasoning. I would have never done that except for Brayden grabbed the stuff and he said it was okay. And since he said it was okay, I might do and it's like we've paid off on our responsibility. And we're very clear on who else was involved. But when it gets to our responsibility, so he says, I ate it. <laughs> Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me. The serpent deceived me and I. They hit the trifecta of blame right off the bat. It's God's fault. It's each other's fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's anyone else's fault. And then I did it. And that's how the blame game works. That's the dangerous trap of the blame game. The moment relationship gets tense, the moment there's been something in the relationship to cause a divide, our instinct from all the way back is to figure out how to take the least amount of responsibility for our actions and clearly paint the most amount of responsibility onto everybody else. And we start playing the blame game. What happens next is horrific. As you can read the scripture on, on your own, and you should, if you haven't read the creation account, you should read it. And there's all kinds of brutal things. That, the entire, it's like the band all starts playing a different song. This beauty of rhythm and relationship and harmony and existence. And suddenly the drums are playing something. The bass is playing something else. The guitar player is just smashing his guitar down. And there's nothing in harmony anymore. Everything is rended and rifted. And all of creation starts fighting against this rending that's happened because because relationship has completely been demolished. As a matter of fact, the most brutal picture of it actually happens in Romans chapter eight, where Paul says, it's like all of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's like continual, perpetual childbirth going on. The pains of it going on. Now listen, I haven't experienced childbirth, but I've been in the room and it looks uncomfortable. And I'm just telling you that the picture that we get of what's happened in this relational connection, it's like our whole world is constantly growing in the pain of childbirth. And come on, in the pain of childbirth, I'm going to speak for the ladies just a little bit here. Sometimes some things come out of you that maybe aren't what you would normally say, not in those moments, right? There's some frustration and there's pain and things that happen and come out of you and it's not pretty. It's not your best uh, necessarily moment in that. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? It was beautiful. They just gave me the shot and I was happy. That's a whole other story, right? <laughs> that's a whole other story. This is the picture of illustration that they're given is this pain of childbirth that's happening. is in the world. And so we look out at the world and we go, why is there so much tension? Why is there so much argument? Why is there so much fighting going on? And it's like the whole world's just struggling in this pain and you get on the news and you watch no two groups of people can get together for any reason whatsoever it's like this fight and this strain and this pain and it's this perpetual state of tension that's in the world because right here in this moment we rifted and rended relationships yeah i just played the blame game right there it's all this fault right here but this moment right here and the reaction to that moment to begin to say i'm afraid and there's guilt and there's shame and i don't want to deal with any of it i'd rather just hide and so we see this incredible tension. You see, I've been in the room when 
big giant rifts happen in relationships. I've been in some tough rooms. One of those things that happen in just life and ministry, and some of you have been in it just as a result of life and friendships and being with people. I've been in rooms where marriages have ended and relationships have ended and grief has happened. I've been, I've been in a room, so a little while back, I was in the room, and, and uh, it was, this is one of the most unbelievable rooms. I've never been in a room like this before. Um, I had a, a friend, a brother in, in Christ that I loved that had been struggling for a long time with an addiction <clears throat> on things online that he was doing that he shouldn't have been doing. And that addiction evolved eventually into actually setting up rendezvous and relationships with people and hiding that from his wife and two children. And, and, uh, and I had a, someone I didn't know at all. Uh, except for casually that came to church and saw this brother that was involved in our, our ministry and came to me and, and said, listen, I know this is really weird, but I printed this out and he gives me this flyer online that is essentially soliciting a date and a rendezvous. And it's this guy, it's his face. I mean, it's obviously him. And I'm thinking this maybe is a joke or a manipulation. It's a bad practical joke that went weird or whatever. So I call him and say, hey, we get together. And I bring another guy with me because it's going to be weird in case it gets weird. And we sit down. I just say, hey, man, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Everything okay? Well, I'm still struggling with some addiction stuff. Okay, I get that. I'm cool. But that's it. Hey, that's it. That's it. I said, okay, well, can you help me? Because someone someone brought me this and and completely unsolicited. And I, and I just need to, is this true? And I put it down in front of him, and he sees his picture and this solicitation for rendezvousing with people that he shouldn't be rendezvousing with. And he looks down, and what begins to come out of him is a series of reasons. Well, in my marriage, this was going on, and she's been unwell, and we haven't been okay, and things aren't okay. And, there's, and all of a sudden, this blame, and just blame, 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 blame. And I said, listen. I understand all this stuff. I'm, I'm just heartbroken. And I'm like, we have to sit down with you. I'm not going to tell her. So I'm like, you have to tell her or else I have to tell her. And so how do you want this to go down? And so we go to his living room and his kids are asleep. And we sat in the living room and he begins <laughs> to just explain away behavior. How many want to know that didn't go very well? And then out comes finally the truth and as much of the truth as we were going to get in that particular shot. And there's all these reasons and you're watching someone who, come on now, would have never just jumped to that level. But that's the danger of the blame game. You see, it started with an addiction to, to things he was doing in a, in a virtual life and that became okay. And he had a reason for that because of this. Then it became a little bit more and it became a little bit more. And every step along the way, there was a reason. Every step along the way, there was, there was a reason why he was doing that. And there was somebody else's fault. And if, if, if the world had just been more fair, if the person that he was doing life with had just been more there for him, if his, if his own identity and things were just more clear for him, he would have never went down those roads. But he did. Make an excuse each step of the way. That's the danger of the blame game. That's the trap of the blame game. So we look out at our lives and we start saying, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, we can get to simple things. When's the last time you were, <laughs> you were not being Jesus in the car? But the reason was what that knucklehead had done. If that guy hadn't cut over and done that and got in front of me and didn't use their blinker or whatever, come on, we could go just start right there. If they hadn't done that, then I would have still been like Jesus, but I'm not being like Jesus right now. Instead, they have, it's their fault that I just had to, you know, wave at them with the just one finger salute. It's their fault. I would never do that normally, but they, but they. And that's, again, the danger and the trap. And so you find yourself in behaviors and, and doing things you know that you shouldn't do. You have to ask a question. Whose fault is it that you do that thing? 
Whose fault is it that you do that thing or that you don't do that thing? Whose fault is it that you do that thing? Because we tend to look around and say, well, I would never do this except for it's them. I would never do that except for this particular scenario. And they did that. The problem is if we really ask the question, we know the answer, but we play the blame game. We know the answer who's responsible for us. You know how many times I've had to have conversations about what are the things that you control? You don't control them, but you control you. You control your response. But you don't understand, Pastor Mike, they did this. Remember the sign? So we personalize it and we say, just because I did it doesn't mean I'm guilty. Instead of just because you did it. We personalize it. Yeah, I did that, Pastor Mike, but this is why. Yeah, I did that, but I'm not guilty. It's their fault. You got to understand a simple truth. Blame will stunt your growth. Blame will keep you trapped. Remember when you were young and uh, like 10, 11, 12, 13, and you wanted to drink some coffee? You're like, coffee, that's awesome. And some adult in your life looked at you and said, don't drink coffee, it'll stunt your growth. Hold off as long as you can. Don't start. How, many, how many of you got that lecture? Don't drink coffee. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not. You guys are close to Seattle. You got it even worse than I did. The temptation was stronger. I need that coffee. And someone said, don't do that. That'll, that'll stunt your growth. Here's the problem. If you're drinking blame, it will stunt your growth. Why? Because if you are blaming someone else for what's happening to you and the choices that you're making, you aren't responsible then to change. Right? It's not my fault. If she just loved me the way I wanted her to love me, if he was just attentive the way I wanted him to be attentive, if, if, if my boss just was more fair, if, 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 then I would never steal the supplies. I would never take the, the thing I should have taken. I would never treat them the way that I... And so we give ourselves permission to stay in patterns that are unhealthy and we drink blame and we never mature and we never grow up and we have unhealthy, devastated, broken relationships. And we play the blame game. You know, it's funny, as I see this all the time, I, I, I worked with teenagers for years and years, and I'm just going to be honest. Teenage boys have a whole laundry list of problems, but, but this is a particularly strong thing in teenage girls that I've worked with. They go through seasons where they're just mean. Just mean to one another for no apparent reason. Nothing seemingly on the outside that my adult brain can comprehend has changed, but suddenly one of them is on the outs. And the whole rest of them have hived up and they're just, oh, they're all mad at this one. And so you get into the middle of this conflict and you try to say, so help me understand. Why is this one on the outs? Well, she, this. Why are you behaving like this? I never behave like this except for this. This seems totally out of your character. It's not out of my character today because they, this. And this blame game just severs and destroys and, and brings tension into relationship and helps us to justify treating people in ways that we would never treat them otherwise. But it's all because of them. She said this or did this. So what's the answer to the blame game? How do we solve it? How do we deal with this incredible tension that we have because of it? And Paul tells us in Romans uh, part of the answer, and I want to unpack that in Romans chapter 2. And if you were here last week, I unpacked from Romans chapter 14, and I gave a big, so a lot of the history of the book of Romans. So I won't do all of that again right now, except to say this, that Paul's writing to this very nuanced church that is basically a cell-based church that's uh, a bunch of different homes, and, and people have gathered that have different 
backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. Some are free, some are slaves, some are rich, some are poor, some are uh, uh, Jewish, some are Gentile, some are all different backgrounds. And they're getting together and they're gathering and they're doing life in church together. They've met Jesus and they've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but they have completely different cultures and they don't know how to interact with one another. And at some houses, it's okay to behave a certain way. And at other houses, it's okay to behave a different way. And it's created this weird tension in this church. There's no unifying way to do church, just like we look out in the church today. And there's no unifying way. How do we do church? Do we do do it this way? Do we do it that way? What's the right way? And Paul's writing to this church that's sprung up but doesn't know how how to be the body of Christ. They just know they love Jesus and they're trying to love people. And so he's walking through all these different tensions. And in Romans 14, we really pressed into that last week. But in Romans 2, earlier in the letter, he's explaining this really weird relational dynamic that they're having with each other. In Romans 1, he's laid out all of these behaviors that last week we talked about disputable manners and some things are disputable and, uh, and some things are indisputable. And he's laid out through Romans chapter 1 a bunch of indisputable things. He's like, you can't behave this way. This is out of control. And then in Romans chapter 2, he's like, but you've got to understand how to relate to people who are behaving this way. And he starts off by this. He says, you therefore, Romans chapter two, verse one, have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And now this is one of the most misquoted, misused principles in scripture, because some of you will hear this and think that pastor Mike just said, you should never, ever judge anybody. That's a basically pretty good principle. You can get pretty far on trying to not be judgmental. That's helpful to kind of have that as your lens. But it is absurd to not have some level of moral judgments. You have to have some level of moral judgments or else we'd have complete anarchy and chaos. We have to agree some things are right and wrong. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, if you don't think there's any moral law that's universal, then go to the amusement park, wait in line, and right when you get to the front, let somebody walk up and cut. You agree there's some morals that should be in place. Someone should not be able to cut you in the front of line, right? And just like that, we understand there are some universal truths of behavior, some non-debatable things that are critical, and it is our responsibility to say, hey, that's not okay. Stop harming that person. Stop harming yourself. Stop harming me. Stop robbing, stealing, killing, destroying. All of those things are true. But Paul's speaking specifically to a group of people who are looking at other people who are following Jesus, saying, you're not doing it right. And he says, listen, you who pass judgment on someone else, whatever point you use to judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you're doing the same things. He's talking about the blame game. He's saying, you're saying it's all that person's fault that you're behaving out of control also, and no one's looking at you. And he's basically saying, what, summarizing what Jesus says about the plank and the speck. He's like, you've got to deal with your own stuff first if you want to see clearly to deal with anybody else's. But you want to find yourself guilty? Start judging someone else before you've taken a look in the mirror. Most of us have enough work to do in the mirror. We don't have time to judge anybody else. It's like, oh, I'm going to judge Marshall as soon as I look. Oh, dang it. Well, if he's still around in about a month when I get done working on this one, then I'm going to start oh, another one, right? We can keep ourselves busy worrying about our own stuff. That's what Paul's trying to articulate. Verse two, he says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And I love this. He's basically saying, you don't have the whole picture of someone ever but God does. You never have the whole picture. So you, you're basing your judgments on what you see, what you know, what reality information data you have available to you. But there's always more truth than what you can see. And you know this, you've been in tension with someone and you say, you know what? There's a lot of stuff going on here, but there's more than what you know. 
You don't know my history, my background. You don't know the thoughts. You don't know what I've walked through. And Paul's saying, but God knows all that. So he's a perfect judge because he has all the data in front of him. Verse three, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Whoo, sizzler. Hot take. Just be aware. When you're playing the blame game, when you're saying, well, Bobby, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't do this. Do you think that's an excuse that God's gonna be okay with as you justify your personal rebellion based on somebody else's behavior? He's like, that's not an out, guys. Stop treating like that like that's an out. But the woman who you put here, then I ate it. Paul's like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And then verse four is one of my favorite truths of scripture it's i think it's criminally underreported this verse verse 4 romans chapter 2 says or do you show contempt for the riches of his talking about god's kindness tolerance and patience not realizing that god's kindness leads you to repentance i think we forget so often and i, I maybe i'm sounding like a broken record maybe you've heard me say this before but what God's strategy for us to change the direction of our lives. Because that's what repentance is, is I'm going this way, right? And I think this way. And repentance is, oh, that's not what I want to be doing anymore. I'm going to change my direction. I'm going to change the way I think about that. And that's what repentance, that's the picture of repentance. It's a physical direction change, but it's also an intellectual uh, uh, agreement with a different way. And God's saying, you know how I get people to change from destructive behavior, destructive past, and out-and-out rebellion, I don't use lightning bolts. That's not my go-to. I can. I certainly can if I need to. I'll lightning bolt someone. That's why I'm not God, though, because I would just only go that route. He says he uses tolerance, kindness, and patience. Are you kidding me, God? (laughs) That's your go-to move when someone's being a knucklehead? Tolerance, patience, and kindness? You got all the tools that you're, I mean, you can literally squish. You could just sneeze and blow us off the map. You could just like a little, just like a flick. Out into space we go. Yet God's move towards people who are moving away from him is kindness, tolerance, and patience. And it's the kindness that leads us to repentance. When I get stuck in the blame game, it just keeps me from improving. Just keeps me from improving. Paul's saying, if you wanna, if you wanna improve and move out of this, you gotta look at yourself. But if I'm in the blame game, I won't improve. The blame game keeps me from improving. If I'm stuck saying it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault, ultimately it's just not me. I'll never improve, I'll never grow. I'll never own my stuff and move past it. I love the way Paul puts it in Colossians, and I'll begin to close right here because of time, but I want you to catch this. Paul says, this is how you got to live. Therefore, Colossians 3.12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, I want you to clothe yourself. These, let's see if these sound familiar with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Sounds pretty similar to how God interacts with us, huh? He says, I want you to clothe yourself because you're God's people the same way that God clothes himself when he deals with other people. And then he says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. He says, you got to deal with each other and you got to make a decision 
as you're dealing with another to be the kind of person who's forgiving and forgives them. And then he says, he goes one step further. He goes, you have to forgive how? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's a big swing, Paul. Like, no thanks, bro, because I know how the, God, how, how the Lord forgave me. He forgave me completely. He knew everything about me and still, and still paid the price for my debt. Now, listen, whenever we get into forgiveness talks, things get tense because there's baggage in the room and people have dumped baggage on us. And we talk about all the time the importance of boundaries. We talk about how forgiveness doesn't mean I accept you and your sin and your harming of me. Sometimes we have to forgive someone and call the cops. Sometimes we have to forgive someone and create a boundary. But ultimately, we are never given permission to not forgive someone. And forgiveness in the biblical picture of forgiveness is saying, I release you from the debt that you owe me. You incur debt by your behavior. You incur debt. I release you from that debt. I release you from that debt. And isn't that what God did for us? Our rebellion, our behavior, what we did led to debt. And that picture that I, I read to you at the opening and, and during worship from Colossians, this picture of, of Christ coming in the flesh, the actual story of the gospel is that he came, lived fully as a man, perfect, fully God and fully man, and then went to the cross so that all of the punishment for all of our debt could be paid so that you and I could be reconciled to God and be debt free. Isn't that the forgiveness that we talk about in the gospel? Isn't that the story of what God did for us? And here's Paul saying, if you wanna have healthy relationships, you're gonna have to put up with somebody who's incurred some debt on your leisure. And you're going to have to make a decision in that relationship to clothe yourself with the same things that God clothed himself when he dealt with you. And you're going to have to make a decision in that to forgive the same way that God forgave you to release that debt. So here's what we're going to do to close the service. Uh, I'm going to have the, uh, the, the team that's going to come help me pass communion. Communion's a really interesting thing that we do as, as, as a church. And if you're unfamiliar with communion, I'm so glad you're here. And, and uh, you should just know here at our church, we don't believe you have to be a member of the church to take communion. That's not part of it. You simply have to want to, as the scriptures say, remember what Christ did for us. And we do communion as an act of remembrance according to what the scripture says. And then the scripture invites us when we take communion, Paul says that we should examine ourselves. We should take a hard look at our own heart, at our own life, at our own situation. And then in light of that, we should remember what Christ actually did when he went to the cross for you and for me and took the weight of all of our sin. And so there's two things I wanna invite you to do, two tensions I want you to walk into as we worship and take communion together. And it's this, stay with me for just a second, guys, listen. I want, um, you're gonna get the communion elements passed out and guys, guys uh, you can go ahead and start passing those out. I don't want you to take the communion right away. I just want you to hold on. You're gonna grab a juice and you're gonna grab a, a wafer and hold on to it. And there's two conversations that you need to have before you're ready to take communion. And the first one is this. How am I doing with receiving the forgiveness that Christ offered to me? Am I, am I free or am I carrying weight I shouldn't be carrying? Because you can't take communion and remember what Christ did for you and still be holding on to the debt that he paid for. That's absurd. And so before you take communion, I just want you to ask the question, God, have I been, am I, am I receiving what you've given to me? And am I receiving the forgiveness that you gave me? And if I haven't been, God, thank you for forgiving me. 
and I lay down whatever I'm holding on to that you paid for. And then the second piece is this, and it might, that might be all you can get through and you might be messed, I don't know. But the second piece is this, is there someone else who the blame game has kept me from forgiving? Who I haven't, I haven't been able to release the debt that they've incurred to me? And I understand I still may have to have a boundary. They may not be safe. I'm not saying they need to come into your circle of immediate relationship. And if you've been with us, we talk about that all the time. But it is not permission to continue to allow them to occupy real estate in your heart. You got to let that go. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You hold on to the communion. The worship team's going to sing and play. And, and you're just seated. And I want you to have those two conversations with the Lord. And once you've had those two conversations with the Lord... I want to give you permission then to take communion, just on your own, whatever your time is. You can drink the juice and take the, take the wafer as an act of remembrance of what Christ did. And then I'd like you to stand so we, so we know you're there and we'll worship together and, and we'll just celebrate what God has done in us and what God is doing through us. And we're going to celebrate the, the restored and renewed life that we have and the relationships that are going to heal and recover because we let go of debt. All right, so Jesus... I recognize that this is personal and tender and we have to be authentic. Um, God, we'll get out what we put in. And so if we, if we run from you in this moment and hide, it's not like you don't see us, but we get it. That's the thing we could do. Or we can have an honest, transparent moment and say, God, in this moment, I, I, I don't know if I've ever even been honest about receiving forgiveness from you. Maybe I did it once as a kid and, 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 or at some point, but I've really been living like I have to carry all my responsibility and weight. So I wanna ask for forgiveness right now and receive the forgiveness that you offered me. And now, now I got to look at some of the situations I've been tied up in where I've been blaming my behavior on someone else or I've been holding on to unforgiveness in some way that has been unhealthy. And I want to forgive them the way you forgave me. Hallelujah. So I want you to begin to have that conversation as we worship. And when you're ready, you take communion and you stand and let's worship together. God, I'm so aware of this incredible love you have for us. Even when we're in our worst moments, our worst state, even when we're running and hiding, I pray so, uh, God, just transparently, honestly, openly for, for those of us that have wrestled with this blame game. It's a very natural reaction to our own behavior. I pray you'd open our eyes we'd recognize and stop playing the game. We'd lead with forgiveness, not even because someone deserves forgiveness. Maybe they, maybe they do deserve the blame, but that's not our role. Our role is to recognize how we've been forgiven and extend that forgiveness to others. I pray for those places where it's tender and it's hard, where without your strength, there's just no way we can do it. I pray for those relationships that have been rended and rifted, that, that there's just been too much baggage we've thought. But what if, what if the answer was we began to stop playing the blame game? We accepted the responsibility for our peace and just offered forgiveness the way you forgive. What if marriages could come together and relationships and families could come together and friendships could come together again because we stopped playing that game. Not because we were so awesome, but because you empowered us and called us to do it. So we say, we trust you. Even when it's difficult, we move towards your grace 
and your compassion and your forgiveness. Give us strength when we're lacking the strength. Give us the courage to do it. And we just want to declare that it's by your power and not our power that we can do it. It's by your strength and not our strength that we can do it. So God, we thank you. We know we're not going to be perfect at this, but we know with your strength, we can be continually be being perfected. Help us to <laughs> walk from this place with the right eyes. Help us to just be aware of when this relational garbage starts to swing up in us and to just say, no, 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 not today. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get a foothold in my life today, Mr. Blame Game. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.